Today we continue our series in the book of Romans. We're looking at chapter 2. We better ask for God's help, so please join me as we pray together. Father God, we ask for your help. Please show us the truth of your word. Help us to live in light of it, that we would glorify you and uh, live lives of praise and thanksgiving to your son, Jesus. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the 15th annual Choice Magazine Shonky Awards for 2020 were released this week. I wonder if you saw them. Did you catch the news? Two shonky items really grabbed me. The first were floor cleaners. Not, not that I ever use them, but 15 floor cleaners were tested. Plain water trumped all of them, outperformed all of them except two. Uh, apparently, uh, people are fooled by the smell of being clean without it actually being clean or even the shininess rather than the reality that the floors are not cleaner. That is shonky. And then there's the air purifier. You can spend $180 on this air purifier and if you did, you would want it to kill everything, wouldn't you? Especially these days, think dust if you're an asthmatic. Uh, smoke, again, COVID-19, you want to kill it all. But Choice Magazine said, no, no, it sucks air in really well and it blows air out again really well, but it makes no difference. The air is unchanged. That's shonky, $180. But they've really got nothing on the shonkiness of 63 million airbags made by Takata or Takata. Uh, they were all recalled. You would have seen that in the news, surely. Driver safety airbags, 63 million of them that were actually unsafe. They did the opposite of what they were designed to do, which isn't just shonky, it's just outright dangerous. What a terrible thing to wake up to the reality you've been putting your hope in the wrong thing. You've woken up to this false sense of security. Which brings us to Romans. Chapter 1, last week, Paul lined up all of humanity, didn't he? And he basically said, you've got no excuse, nobody does. You've turned your back on your creator. You've ignored your createdness, wrath of God for you. And imagine being uh, in the Roman church as the letter is read out and you're a Gentile going, oh yeah, the wrath of God, creation, there's, there's no excuse, that's right. But then imagine you look across and your Jewish brothers are now smiling at you. They're nodding too, but for a different reason because they're nodding, uh, they're nodding at the chapter one stuff but they're nodding because they're like, oh, well, we are so glad that same creator God entrusted us with the law. And when I say the law, think Ten Commandments, all of that, if it helps. They're probably sitting there going, yeah, thank God we have a, a, a special privileged relationship. I'm glad I'm not them. I mean, we've got the law. We've got circumcision. I'm glad I'm not them. Well, verse 1. You with me? You, therefore, 
Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. In these next couple of verses, it's about four or five times the Apostle Paul mentions passing judgment. Uh, and as they pass judgment, what are they doing? They're doing the same things. They're doing the very things they pass judgment on. And you say, well, well, the same things as what? What are the same things? All of last week, if you missed last week, it's worth a look. All of last week, in which case we as a reader, we go, oh, yikes, yikes. Paul is saying, you guys are no better. And a huge implication is that just as in chapter 1 we heard that humanity in general has no excuse, look at creation. Here in chapter 2 we see that it's the privileged religious people that think they're better than everyone else. What have they got? they got no excuse either. That's what it says. Look at verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, wow, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, uh, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Well, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is revealed. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. Verse 8, there'll be wrath and anger. Verse 9, trouble, distress for every human being who does evil. Which means Jews, Gentiles, you're all human beings. You're all in the same boat. God's judgment is impartial. Impartial. He doesn't play favourites. Verse 11 is clear. You can't get plainer than that. Now pause for a moment. Have a think. You might read these verses and you might be thinking, you know, Adam, oh, verses 5 onwards, verse 6, it just sounds, verse 7, it sounds worksy. It sounds like it's Paul talking about salvation by works. You know, so those whose hearts are set for glory, verse 7, happy days. Those who live for self, though, and reject the truth and follow evil, verse 8, well, they get wrath and anger. Sounds like works. And the answer is no. Salvation is never based on your works, but God's condemnation certainly is. Paul is showing us the black hole of Romans, remember, and he's showing us how people are lost. Not how they are saved. We are condemned in accordance with what we do, but we are saved in accordance with what Christ has done. And what we do is important because it's the key to who we are and even whose we are. Now you might go, well, Adam, what we do, isn't that shaped by what we know? Or don't know even. Is that right? And you go, yeah, of course. 
Poor theology will drive poor behaviour. Good theology, hopefully, is driven by good behaviour. That's how it works. And then you say, well, okay, but how is that fair? See, what if I don't know? What if I'm not born a Jew? Uh, what, what if someone is never told this stuff? What if I'm not born into a Christian family? What, what about then? And then I say, well, I'm so glad you asked. So glad you asked. Look at verse 12. See if you can follow the argument. Paul says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. If you're confused by that, jump to chapter 3. That'll explain it. But come with me to verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, well, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness. See, the Apostle Paul is saying, all people know something of the Creator God, don't they? He said that in chapter 1, verse 20, so that we're without excuse. Next question, if we know that there's a God somewhere innately in us, do all people then have a sense of right and wrong? Well, that's verses 14 to 15, isn't it? Of course we do. And so people will be judged for sin... Sin as defined by Moses and the law. Yeah, that's verse 12 and 13. But they'll also be judged as defined by conscience. Don't we have an inner morality? Our consciences bear witness. Sometimes our conscience condemns us sometimes it defends us and so verse 16 come judgment day you'll be judged according to what you know francis schaefer is a, a theologian he describes these verses as the invisible tape recorder works like this god has put around our necks a little tape recorder which is invisible you can't see it you can't feel it, but you can be sure it's there. And on judgment day, when anyone stands before God in judgment, some people are going to say to God, hey, God, you can't hold me to this standard because I didn't know anything about it. I've never heard of the law. So how can you hold me to your standard? I don't believe in you. So how can I be answerable to you? That sounds unreasonable. I haven't read the Bible. I don't know your standards. I don't know you. God, you cannot therefore judge me. And at that point, what is God going to do? Well, God's going to reach around and he's going to take off that recorder and it will become visible. And the person will say, oh, I didn't know that was there. And God, God will say, well, how could you? It was invisible. But then God will say, I want you to know I'm the fairest judge there is. And I'm not going to judge you according to the Bible because you didn't know the Bible and I'm not going to judge you according to your belief in Christ because you didn't know Christ. I'm going to judge you by your own words. How about that? 
Because this tape recorder only records when you say you ought or when you say you should to another person. That's the only time it records. And this tape recorder only records the standards that you have set for everyone else around you. And so I'll not judge you by anything except by your own words to other people. Your own expectations of other people, that is what I will judge you by. And that's verse 1 again, isn't it? What, what, what was verse 1? You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. If that's true, we're all guilty. You know, think about it. I didn't have to think about this too hard. It happens every time someone cuts me off in traffic, doesn't it? And I become indignant because, oh, of course, I've never been inconsiderate in all of my life, right? I'm the perfect driver. Just ask me. Or it happens every time there's a perceived criticism or accusation because, of course, I've never been critical or accusing of another, ever. My mouth is pure. Or it happens every time people don't listen to me. Why don't people listen? Because, of course, my ability to listen and understand is impeccable, right? Is that right? Or am I kidding myself? Yeah, of course I'm kidding myself. How bankrupt am I? How bankrupt do I know I am? But, of course, the question to right now is for you. The, the charge of being inconsistent is easy. It's very easy. It's even cheap, a little bit cheap. Why? Because we're all guilty. We're all guilty of it. And if Schaefer is right, it does bear thinking about it. If he's right, who of us will be able to stand come judgment day? Uh, we know already it's not the irreligious. We met them in chapter one, but chapter two tells us it's not the religious either. The religious are kidding themselves. None of us will be able to stand. Why? Because we are not even able to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. And this is the reality of the depth of our sin. And if that is true, we are all lost, every single one of us. How on earth then, how on earth, Adam, can we be spared from the wrath of God that we keep reading about here in chapters 1 and 2? Now, this is where a Jewish person hearing this in church, they might jump up and go, yeah, but our society has become a, we're all full of yeah, buts, aren't we? Yeah, but we have the law. That's what they're going to say. And so in verses 17 to 24, Paul anticipates that. And he basically says, you know, possessing the law doesn't spare you from the wrath of God. Possessing the law, having it, doesn't qualify anybody to be a guide, a light, an instructor, or a teacher, because none of you actually did it. All you ever did was break it. That's verse 23. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Yeah, they did. This is where the Jew then says, yeah, but we have circumcision. Surely. Verse 25, 
Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you did not get circumcised. Imagine hearing that. You've got to be kidding me. Now, this is important to get our heads around because circumcision is like a signature on a contract. It's symbolic of Genesis 17, which I hope you've read out. It symbolises the truth that if I fail to keep the covenant, then may I be cut off. It's really expressing that. If I fail to do my part, may I be cut off. And you know which part got cut off. I'm not explaining that for you, but you're saying all the covenant curses fall on me if I don't. And might I say, that should be some memory jogger, right? Did Abraham keep the covenant? Moses? David? <laughs> no. These Jews in Rome, did they do it? No. no. Nobody did it. Look at verse 25. We've, I've read it already. You've become as though you had not been circumcised. So here Paul's argument, possessing the law, it's no, no protection from God's wrath. Having circumcision, no protection from God's wrath. They're putting their confidence in the wrong things. And all it's done is given them a false sense of security. At this point, such tradition and ritual, it's no better than a shonky air freshener or worse, a faulty airbag. And it's dangerous. But why? Because the failure of religion is the failure of the human heart. The answer to, to the failure of religion is to get a new heart. That's the solution. Look at verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. See, it's not, it's not about ceremony and ritual. Even race and ethnicity is not a category here. You've got to see that. But verse 29, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Wow. God is in the heart business. So what is going on in your heart today as you've read through Romans chapter 2 or chapter 1? Can you see that you can try and obey the law and you can try and tick all the boxes and you'll fail every time? The demands of the law to love God with all your heart, strength, soul and mind and to love your neighbour, even the best of it, we fail. But it gets us thinking about the sacraments. Think about them for a moment. Think about the Lord's table. Think about baptism. They are empty signs. They are empty religious tokens if they are not matched with the inner reality that they symbolise. You can jump through all the religious hoops. You can go through all the tradition, all the ritual, all the ceremony, and it will count for nothing unless your heart belongs to Christ. See, baptism is supposed to be a symbol 
of new birth. Our death with Christ, in Christ, and our resurrection to new life. That's baptism. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of the foundation of our right relationship with God is through the work of his son on the cross. And unless these truths are real in our experience, participation in them, it's just like the law and just like circumcision, just because you got them doesn't guarantee anything. It's just outward. It's just window dressing. It's empty and potentially vacuous. No amount of religiosity saved anybody. And it's dangerous to think otherwise. Do you think being Anglican means that you're right with God, that God's wrath is turned aside because you got baptised as a baby? Being charitable. Or being baptised, confirmed, married and buried in a church. Doing daily quiet times. Does that turn God's wrath aside? I mean, these are good things to do. And you can jump through all the hoops. You can get everything religiously right. And it amounts to naught unless your heart belongs to Christ. To think that such outward things serve as a security blanket of sorts is a false hope. It's just plain shonky. But what we actually need, and this will sound a bit odd, what we actually need is a circumcised heart that only Christ can give us. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about that in another place. He talks about it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11, 12 and 13. And there he's saying that we've been circumcised in a way that matters through Christ and his death on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus lived out that covenant curse that was coming to everybody. Jesus experienced the curse that was our curse. Jesus was quite literally cut off. And he did it for you and he did it for me as he bore our sins on the cross. And through his death, our sin is not only forgiven, but we are also given a new heart, a new spirit, so that we can now obey God and serve God happily and joyfully. And it doesn't matter who we are. And it doesn't matter if we're religious and have the law and tradition or whatever and spend our time, all our time ticking the boxes, trying to please God, trying to do the right thing. False security. Shonky. Shonky. Doesn't work. It doesn't matter if we've been completely irreligious either and spend all of our time trying to please ourselves. All of us, either category, are completely lost and will not be saved with even our best efforts or even our lack of it. It's only as we come to Jesus. It's only as we hold fast to Jesus. The Jesus, the truly, the only truly righteousness of God. 
who went to the cross so that we can be changed and give it a new heart and come to love his ways and live his ways as we should. So let us not be self-righteous and judgmental. Let us never show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience. Verse 4, may we always realise God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. A repentant life is a changed life, a changed life where we grow in Christ. Let us be thankful to God that behind all this bad news, there is a silver lining, a good God who has come to save us in a gracious and merciful way in his son Jesus. And for that we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.